Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeblassengame, and I am your host. Today, we have Noah Shaw. Noah was born in 1963 in the Bronx. Noah moved with his family multiple times before settling in Connecticut at age 14. By this time, he had already been drinking for four years, and he had already attended nine different schools, many of which he was kicked out of. Despite the unwavering love of his family, Noah never felt comfortable in his own skin. He never fit in with the other kids and always felt inadequate when he compared himself to everyone around him. After multiple fights, blackouts, car crashes, violence, dead friends, suicide attempts, family tears, failed marriages, empty bank accounts, failed stints in rehab, and brushes with the law, Noah finally found himself asking for help and wanting to change. While life has not been a straight path from the bottom, Noah has worked for decades on creating and sustaining a beautiful and rewarding life filled with love, career satisfaction, and overall contentment. Noah learned early in his sobriety that perhaps one of his greatest innate gifts was his ability to connect with and inspire others to improve their lives. The ability to help other people is the single greatest asset he has had helping himself stay sober and stay content and stay in the light. Noah has been in the therapeutic field for over 20 years and is a well-known and loved soul cycle instructor in New York. All right, ladies, gentlemen, and everyone in between... I am pleased to present you with the famous Soul Cycle instructor Noah Shaw and his incredible story. All right, episode 44. Let's do this. I think that. You know, our egos are such a big part of this whole thing, right? I mean, it's just such a big part of it that it's easy to see how someone can take that, all of that um, reinforcement and use it as to fill that, you know, God-shaped hole as we talk about. Like, it's, I mean, I get, like, I can see how that, how that happens. You know, in my, in my little world of soul cycle, you know, I'm like, I'm a F-list celebrity. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm so far down below A that I'm like F, maybe even maybe even G or an H. But I'm so cognizant and so aware of like not falling into that trap of believing what everybody says about me. And that's I think people like my class and they come to my class and they come back because I'm very fucking real about it. I'm like, listen, I'm a fucking soul cycle instructor. I'm a fitness instructor. I come into class with the object to entertain, bring love, bring kindness, bring joy, but I'm not a fucking celebrity. And people are like, oh my God, you're so fucking famous. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not famous at all. And even if I was, I wouldn't fucking admit it. I would like fucking shut that shit down immediately because, you know, so DJ AM was, was a good friend of mine. He wasn't my best friend. We weren't the closest people in the world, but his best friend, Derek, was one of my best friends. So we shared a best friend. That's that's the level of our friendship. It wasn't like when he died and fucking everybody was Adam's best friend. And I'm like, you know, like people, every fucking buddy came out of the fucking corner. Like, like I'm a best friend. I'm a best friend. They're so broken up in their fucking meetings. I'm like, I know he used to talk shit about you. He didn't even like you. And you're now his best friend, like in a meeting, like in that. So this ego thing that, that that I'd heard for many years before, but has become attributed to him 
the whole starve the ego feed the soul thing. And I've said it at fucking soul cyclone. I've said it around to people. And he and I, we used to talk about that decades ago, you know, and it's like, it's so appropriate because especially at this time in our lives where people's egos are being just fucking filled with likes and Instagram influencers. And that's just ego. This is just, we're, we're running in a country, we're running in a world right now that is just so ego-driven, whether in sobriety or not, it's all just fucking ego. It's like, look at how fucking famous I am. Like, look at it. You know, I know this girl who was a teacher with SoulCycle, she quit just to be an Instagram influencer. I'm like, you can fucking do that? Like, you can do that? You can just be on Instagram and that's your living? Is that really living? I mean, that may be a source of income, but like, what are you doing for fucking humanity? You know, I had this thing and I'll, I'll just... I'll just ramble for a second is that I was talking, I I've been doing these little zoom meetings the other day and my goal is to get to 10,000 followers. It has nothing to do with ego. It has to do with the swipe up. It has to do with the ability to swipe up. And I believe, and I've even pitched this to fucking somebody at Instagram. One of my friends who's high up in Instagram, I keep saying, if I get the ability to swipe up once a week, at least once a week for 24 hours, that swipe up will be connected to a charity. And I think if you have the ability to swipe up, it should be mandated that once a week, it is, if you have that many fucking followers, if you have that platform, 10, 20, 300 fucking thousand, a million people, you should have to, if you are going to monetize that, you should be forced to monetize that for good, even for 24 hours. Like, why are we not bringing fucking more good in the world? And then, and then sitting and wondering why everything has become so superficial. I think that, um, in many ways, the corona, and this is just my opinion, may sound silly, but in many ways, the coronavirus is forcing us all, like everyone in the world, except maybe healthcare workers, although I, I do think them as well, to slow down and stop it, look at what really matters. I think it's forcing, I mean, it's bringing everyone to their knees, right? It is just, except maybe Sherman. It's absolutely changing the landscape of everything we know and believe. And I just keep having this nagging feeling that something ha something catastrophic had to happen for the world to put humanity before business, to put environment before business, to stop like like the cruise ships, the airline, all this that was never going to stop and think about how to make things, you know, how to make the sea, you know, all these things, all these things. There was never going to be a break in any of it. And everything has been brought to its knees. And I'm not saying I would have done that. I'm just saying it's not lost on me that's, that humanity is forced to look at its humanity right now. I mean, yeah, this is the first time ever in the history of the world where we are simultaneously, everybody sharing pain, like the world is in pain. The entire world's in pain right now. I believe that some good will come of it. I believe some, you know, some will use it for nefarious purposes and fucking increase their agenda, increase their, listen, it's, it's fucking, it's being, it's being used for racism and xenophobia and America first and all this shit. But it's, it's allowing, I don't think it's forcing anybody, but I think it's allowing people the room mm. to grow spiritually. I like that. If they choose to take it. If they choose to take I totally if agree. If they with choose that. to take it. There's right. for every for every three people, you know, for every three people that are like, oh my God, I'm gonna work on this, I'm gonna work on this, I'm gonna work on this. It's like, well, that's 
that's there's another two people going i can't believe i'm stuck at home and this really sucks and i miss people and you know i i did my part i ordered a ukulele because i've always wanted to play ukulele like that's that's something that i think i can wrap my head around and like become good at but like after you do after you go to aa and do all the spiritual growth when you have finally have time to relax you're like ah cool it's so easy right now i can just log into any meeting anywhere in the world at any time but i think there's other people that are being given the time in their lives to like, okay, maybe I can just stop and use this for reflection. Right. You know, and that's, yeah. that's beautiful. It's, it's, a, it's giving them the space. People who wanted to, space. but have been to the pace of their lives wouldn't allow it. They, their, their work, their job, everything they got caught, so caught up with, it's allowing them to step back and look, take a look and go, okay, hold on a second. You know, it's like, I put up a post on Instagram, like, I don't know, about a week ago, over a week ago saying, Hey, if you woke up this morning and you have to be in your house, that means you have a house. Right. I saw that. Yeah. And, and that dude, that got like 5,000 likes. It was insane. That just like shit went viral, like in my little tiny corner of the world, like every, that resonated with people so much. And I'm glad, you know, I'm not, you know, it's something that was a, a lesson of gesture of, of uh, a gesture of gratitude that was taught to me, you know, so I don't take credit for it. I'm just passing on the gifts. that are. But yeah, I mean, people are like stopping and going, okay, yeah. Oh shit. I have a house. And they can be upset like an hour later, but they've had that moment of clarity, yeah. which is beautiful. Yeah, it is. It is beautiful. And um, yeah, I think we all have to do our part. And, and your story is a lot about that. How, how long have you been clean and sober? Uh, it'll be 13 years in September. I was sober for 15 years. Um, I, ha- I had it all figured out. I had the life beyond my wildest dreams. I was working, making music videos. And uh-huh. so it was really funny because like, no, uh, first AD, but like a lot of my crew, all my crew was like a bunch of sober dudes. It's like Mike, Mike Dronge and mega jaw, may he rest in peace. Like there were, we'd have like 10 sober guys on the cruise that I was working on. So it was like, it felt like I was sober and we were talking about it and we were talking about it. We were talking about it, but I just, you know, I got into so much spiritual pain because I'd stopped going to meetings and stopped doing the things that you have to do. Like I would say, sobriety looks a million different ways. Getting sober looks a million different ways. Relapse looks the same every time. What'd you do? I stopped going to meetings. I so stopped let's, every let's, fucking let's time. Let's stop there. Let's stop there. I want to ask about that, right? Okay. Because, because I do know people who are, you know, I do know people who are sober a long time who don't go to meetings or, and they, they do the thing that you're talking about, right? And they, where they, they consort with a lot of sober friends and whatever, and they've stayed sober quite some time. And when you say I was, I had these friends, we were talking about recovery, but I didn't go to meetings. Like, can you, and and this is reaching people who don't have a lot of exposure to this. We're talking to people who like, this might be the first time they've ever, they don't know what happens in meetings or whatever. What, what is it for you? Like in your experience, the difference between what you were doing when you were talking to people and your friends and talking about recovery and what you were lacking. Like, can you make that connection? It's, it's the most simple thing in the world is that if you don't go to meetings, you don't see newcomers. And if you don't see people who are fucking fresh off the boat, brand new, sober, 24 hours, shaking and fucking skipping, you forget what you are like. You lose track and you're not, and you're a, you're not seeing them B you're not passing along what has been given to you? Yeah, I'm talking to a fucking bunch of dudes who've been sober for a bunch of years. Right. That's actually... You know, great. So it was like, there was a period, uh, I, can't, I can't remember everybody, it was like Mega Jaw, 
Josh Lazy, myself, Ron, and a couple other guys. Ron, who had the coffee shop on fucking Sunset. I don't know if you ever knew about the, you the know, meeting. Would you remember yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't, yeah, it was the fucking coffee, top fuel. And there were like five or seven of us, I think about seven of us who all had between like 15 and 20 years. We had a bunch of fucking time and we all went out like within close distance of each other. All, all of you. Every single one. All of us. Every single one. There were like seven guys with, with all with 10 plus years. And I was, I was just about to hit 15. Lazy was about the same. And then we all went out. Now me and Josh Lazy are the only two that are still alive from that entire group. Oh my gosh. And all the rest of them came back and tried to stay sober. So I count myself among the incredibly blessed. Because I got humble really fucking quickly. I got, I put my, threw myself back into meetings. I threw myself back into like all the things that meet, meet listen, every, it's not for, it's not for no reason that for fucking 70 years, people have been saying two things. Meeting makers make it. Meeting makers make it. You go to meetings, you do the fucking work, but you got to go to the meetings. That's the first thing. What's the old school? Go to meetings, call your sponsor, don't drink. Like that was the three things. That was the three things. That was the pillar. I mean, Al Signs, God bless him. I miss him every fucking day. He's in my mind every day. He used to say fucking sobriety and all the old curmudgeon guys used to tell me and told a bunch of people. And this is back when you could smoke and coffee was like in mugs. He'd say sobriety is in the ashtrays and the coffee mugs. That meant you were around. That meant you were at the fucking meeting. That means you were there before and fucking after helping to clean up. There is something in, it's intrinsic about meetings it's i see the newcomer i help the newcomer i see alcoholics that i don't all others see i give away what's gotten to me what's been given to me freely for fun and for free i give that away and i can't i can talk about it all day long but i have to go to the meeting to see it working i have to see that guy come in at 24 hours and then i have to still be there 30 days later when he collects that fucking chip and that look of like or guy or girl or that human and that person get that 30 days and then fucking go, Oh my God, I remember getting 30 days or I remember getting years, people seeing their first year and being like, fuck yeah, I'm so happy for that person and watching that change in them. And through osmosis, I change and through, through observation, my life and my experience has changed. So, so that's why. So what year did you originally got sober? 88? 88. Yeah. I got sober February 28th or 29th, 1988. Okay. And how old were you? 25. And what brought you to a place of needing to get sober? Did you, you got sober in Los Angeles, right? No, no. Okay. No. Okay. No. Where... Big. Oh God. This is a, this is a long drawn out story. I went to my first rehab in like 83, went on runs. I mean, well, let's, I have the let's, very... back, let's back up. Where are you from originally? I'm from the what we call the tri-state area, New Jersey, New York, and Connecticut. So okay. nine nine schools, 12 years, three different states. Okay, and why? We just, we just kept, my father was climbing the corporate ladder in the 70s, new job every other year, every year and a half. Um, we were just moving all the time, and he kept growing and growing and growing and growing and get building or getting our family out of like, you know, lower income to like very fucking high income areas. We ended up in Fairfield County, Connecticut. I was 15, 16. I began dealing large amounts of cocaine. It was the cocaine 70s in New York City. Um, by like, I'll give 1978, let's say, 70, 79. So I was 16 years old. 
I would go into, I'd go into the, like on a, on a, on a given day when I wasn't in school, I would, let's say summertime, I would go into the Bronx and hang out all day up in the Bronx where my family's originally from and watch the beginning of hip hop, watch the beginning of break dancing. Like I was there on the standing and sitting in the basketball courts, like sitting on the fucking stands, just like watching the birth of hip hop, like not knowing what was happening. And then I would chill out and go home, relax, rest up for the afternoon you know, early evening, later in the evening, I would go to CBGB's, the punk rock club, go watch some shows there. After that, about, you know, 10 o'clock, 10 p.m. or 11 o'clock, go out, have some dinner in New York. And then by one o'clock, I'd go to Studio 54 and I would sell cocaine there all night long. How did you discover or, and, and what was that experience like? How did you discover alcohol or drugs, whatever came first? What brought you to the point where you wanted to try it and why why did you start to abuse it? What did it do for you that you didn't have on your own? So my father was in advertising. This is the like, 72. I was 10 years old the first time I drank. And my father was in the advertising business or newspaper. And to all his customers at Christmas time, his favorite drink was wild turkey, bourbon. Oh, love and me some wild when, turkey. And when he would come home at night, you know, this is all in hindsight, I would watch... He was in a, working for a very fucking stressful company, doing a lot of work. Work. He was complete work. Not. I hate to say workaholic. He was just driven. He'd been. You know. He grew up in a fucking bathtub in the, in the Bronx in the ghetto. And, you know. He was just driven. So to call him a workaholic is to dismiss his inner drive. Right. right. It's just too easy a fucking label. But he was working himself like crazy, and I mean, he would come home and his fucking hands would be shaking and just because of stress. And we knew like he would sit down. He would pour you know wild turkey on the rocks with a twist. And I would, we would all wait for him. He was not an abusive person. We would just, out of love, we would wait for him to get a bourbon in him before we like started with our day, you know, because we all just saw the stress and the pain that he was going through. Are you, and how many siblings do you have? I have one brother. One brother, younger? Younger, five years younger. He thinks he's an alcoholic. I don't think he is. He's been sober forever, but like 30 fucking years. But I think his sobriety is more of a reaction to my alcoholism and he got worried. So he just stopped drinking. I never saw him act in any way like any sort of alcoholic, but I think it's just scared. It's like scared straight worked. So my father at Christmas time would order, you know, 40 cases of fucking wild turkey to give out, to give out bottles as presents to all of his clients. And he would keep like eight cases for himself for the year, you know, so because he was getting a big discount from his Italian friends in the fucking Northeast who would sell him the fucking cases of wild turkey. So, you know, he'd order 30 and fucking pay for, you know, 20 because they were all stolen, whatever it was. But he went out of the 10 cases. And one day I took a bottle with my best friend Vinny and we went into the woods and we fucking were just like curiosity. I like, I guess I had seen its effect on my father and I guess in my little 10 year old brain. I was like, well, just see, you know, see what happens. And me and Vinny got fucking brutally sick and threw up all over the place because we got too shit-faced. I was like half a bottle of bourbon for a couple of 10-year-olds. And Vinny was like, that was horrific. I was like, yeah, that was horrific. And I was back out there the next day. Now, Vinny had two older brothers who were like 14 at that time, 14, 15. And I hung out with them a lot. They had a big family, big Italian family lived across the street. There were like, you know, 10 siblings. But his two older brothers, Leo and Ray, who were... Uh, twins their new thing became noah you want to try smoking weed i was like sure noah here snort this i so i tried coke you know they gave me a little piece of acid i tripped like everything you can imagine 
between the ages of 10 and 11. So it wasn't like you were a tortured child. Like this wasn't a torture. No, no man. My yeah. fucking parents, my parents are the parents you dream of. My parents are everybody's favorite parents. Like everybody loves my parents. They couldn't be more fucking loving and kind. There was, was there pain? Of course. Was it any greater or less than any other kid who moves a bunch or starts and I was the new kid a lot. I can blame it on that, but it's, it's, that's not the fucking reason. I'm just an alcoholic. I'm just a garden variety fucking alcoholic. I don't know why I have it. I know I do. And I always say this to people. I'm like, people are like, well, why, why? Don't you wonder why you are an alcoholic? I'm like, no. Even if God or her fucking self came down and stood at the fucking head in front of my bed and told me why I was an alcoholic, that wouldn't change anything. Right. It doesn't change the treatment. Doesn't change a fucking, doesn't, doesn't change, change a fucking thing. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, it doesn't. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, everybody. This is Ashley Lowe Blossom Game, the co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery and your host. Lion Rock Recovery has introduced a support meeting specifically for people struggling with anxiety related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Structured as an ongoing workshop, the COVID-19 anxiety support meeting will teach coping skills and be a place to share and connect with others also feeling the effects of this crisis. Everyone struggling with anxiety about COVID-19 is welcome. Let me repeat that. Everyone struggling with anxiety about COVID-19 is welcome. To view the meeting schedule and join a meeting in session, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com and click on the orange banner at the top of the page. You can't miss it. Together, we will learn to feel more centered and empowered in the face of this great challenge. I think it's good for people to hear that you don't have to have some horrific scenario in order to have this problem. Like you, it just is what it is. And sometimes I think that for some people, that's a real struggle. That's a real hurdle for them. Listen, you've got it. If you got it, you got it. Get like, you don't like, you don't have a hurdle when like the doctor goes, well, you have cancer. You don't go, but, but really do I, you know, because why would I have that? And why me? You know, you have fungus in your toenails. Like, well, really do I, what did I do to get this? What do I do? Why do I deserve that? It doesn't fucking matter. Go get your fungus, toenail fungus fixed. Like if you're an alcoholic, just go get fixed. And here's the only thing is somebody with toenail fungus or cancer, and, and that's a pretty broad spectrum. When they get better, they're back to exactly where they were. The crazy fucking thing is if you're lucky enough to be an alcoholic or drug addict, whatever, if you get sober and if you get clean, do whatever your fucking words you want to use, it's all semantics, all the same thing. If you follow the steps and you go to the meetings and you talk to the people and you do the recommended course of treatment, your life gets exponentially better right. than you could have ever fucking imagined. Than you would have been had you just not had it. Yeah, just even if you just stopped. It's so true. Yeah. So true. Yeah. It, it's hard it's to, it's a hard concept unless you've really seen it enough times, you know? I mean, for particularly for people who aren't in the program and aren't, don't see that. But so you, so you, you're living it up in the seventies in, in New York and- oh, yeah. That's putting it mildly. Putting it mildly. And when was the first time that you went to treatment? The first time I went to treatment was 1983. 1983, I went to Silver. I went to well, I went to the Institute. <laughs> I went Hill. to a place called the, I went to, well, I went to the Institute for Living for a week, which is a lockdown psych unit. 
uh, in Hartford, Connecticut, one of the, the oldest psychiatric for living. For living. It's one of the. It's literally. It's one of the oldest psychiatric hospitals in America, and it's a lockdown psych unit. And I timed. I used to watch the nurses time the door, and I was. I was. I was a runner. I was fucking young. I was raised in the city. I could run. I could fight. I could fucking figure things out. I was really, really, really crazy good. I was a really high end athlete. Like I go as fast as fuck. And so I timed it until I saw a door was like just about to close. And I ran out that door, then ran down a flight of stairs. And then I literally like, you know, like out of a fucking movie, there was like orderlies running across me on this like 15 acre campus. I'm running and I hit this big brick wall. Like, and I jump and fucking vault over the wall and I run down the streets of Hartford, Connecticut uh, and go into a blistering fucking like four week, just bender. And after then, the end of that, they checked me into Silver Hills and I was at Silver Hills for a while. It was a rehab and, you know, I was sneaking up. There's Silver Hills in the woods of New Canaan, Connecticut. Yeah. So I would have my friends from Stanford, Connecticut, where I was, my parents were living. And they would meet me in the woods with beers and weed and shit every night. So I would like go to the meeting. At Silver Hills? When you were at Silver Hills? At Silver Hills, yeah. Then I'd sneak out to behind the gym and meet my boys out there. And we just sit out there and party all night. I'd stumble back to my room and pass out. And then wake up and be like, yeah, sobriety's great. I love rehab. I feel great. Got thrown, got thrown out of there. You know, it just, it just went on and on. You know, it was like I would try to rehab. And then I just, it was just a place to recover. It was just a place to like get my physical self back because I was just ruining myself. I would just push my body and my mind to the absolute limit through a couple of, you know, three attempted suicide attempts. Numerous, numerous, numerous car accidents that there I have no reason to walk away from. Um, no, no, ex, you know, explain like state troopers standing next to my bed going, I know you were drunk, but I don't know why God saved your life. I've never seen anybody walk away, let alone live through an accident like yours. I'm not even in fucking charge. I'm not even giving you a ticket. Like you, like, I don't know why you're alive. Like multiple times that would happen. I gotta wake up with a hot cop standing next to me. And be like, I, I don't know why you're alive. I have no, like, it's, they'd show me pictures. they like, Polaroid pictures because this is fucking so long ago. It wasn't like they had pictures on their phone. Yeah. They'd, they'd take Polaroid pictures of the accident and be like, look at this. How do you walk away from that? They'd show it to the doctor and be like, look what he lived through. And they'd be like, and I'd have like a, ban- a Snoopy bandage on my head or something. You know, it was like silly. It was crazy. So finally, I'm going to make a long, long story, very, very short. And if anybody wants to hear my full story, I will say at the First three episodes of my podcast are my entire life story. If you go to I'm here to help with Noah Shaw on Apple, whatever. And we'll put it in the uh, we'll put it in the show notes. All right. Here's how do I tell this as quickly as possible. So I had been living my parents lived in Stanford, Connecticut. I went on a really they went away for two months and I went on a horrific cocaine run and all levels of cocaine psychosis and paranoia. And I was about to kill myself. I called a friend who lived in Utah. He said, come to Utah. I went to Utah. I'd done so much damage at home that by the time my parents got home and they found the house and the way I'd left it and the tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars I'd stolen from my father's company to pay for my coke habit, they just cut me off and didn't want to talk to me. So that went on for about nine months, almost a year. They finally broke down and they came and visited me and they spent a weekend, a long weekend in Utah with me. They saw how well I was doing. They bought me a car. They gave me money. They bought me clothing. My father got me a job. Like they did all the people call it enabling. And I'm like, well, you know what? It enabled me to live, you know? So it's like people like, I know a lot of parents beat themselves up. Like, I can't believe I was enabling, you know, 
I may be dead if it wasn't for the enabling. So it's like I don't ever beat people up for doing that. And I think a lot of the I think a lot of stigma has been put on that. Yeah. You know? So I was uh they came out on Thursday, they left on Monday. I drove them to the airport in my new car. It was all hugs and kisses goodbye. I drove to my fucking nearest bar close my favorite bar. And that was a Monday morning at like ten o'clock and I pulled up to the bar and my new car and everything was cool and everybody's like, Oh god, you got a car? I'm like, Yeah, check it out. I got a pocket full of fucking money, like, you know, ten thousand dollars, whatever. And the next thing I knew I wake I woke up. Like I literally don't remember anything from that moment until I sat I sat up in a hotel room in a bed. And there was a girl next to me. I had no idea who she was. The windows were closed. The detritus of a fucking massive party had happened in this fucking hotel room. I don't know. Like, I can't even tell you like beer bottles and fucking cases stacked up and just fucking wrappers of paper and Coke and straws and all this shit. And so, you know, fucking buck naked. I sat up, I fucking grabbed a cigarette. I lit a cigarette and I walked over to the window to open to the window to open the curtains to see what the weather was like outside. And I'm thinking I'm in Salt Lake city, Utah. And I open the window, open the curtains and it's like, Holy shit. I'm in a big fucking city. I'm like, I'm not in like Toto and can like Dorothy, you're not in Kansas anymore. I'm not in Salt Lake anymore. So I opened the window, the, the window, the screens, the blinds, and I looked down and there was a little thing that said, Welcome to the holiday of downtown Chicago. <laughs> I'd made it to Chicago uh... in a total blackout. So I called my father. And he goes, where, where the fuck are you? We've been looking for you for a week. I'm like, I'm in Chicago. And he's like, where's the car? I'm like, I sold it. He goes, where's the money? I'm like, it's gone. Where's the clothing? I'm like, it's gone. Where's the apartment? I'm like, it's gone. And I said, dad, I think I'm going to kill myself. And my father, who is one of the kindest and nicest people in the world said, Noah, if that's what you got to do, that's what you got to do. And then hung up on me. So my father realized that the pain that I was in and the pain the family was in it was better off just ending it. I was better off, literally better off dead. He didn't want to see me in that amount of pain, and he didn't want to see my family or himself in that amount of pain. He knew it was the end, that I just couldn't live, that we would all be better off if I, if I killed myself. I mean, to get to push your family yeah, to a place like that. I can't imagine. Gnarly. I checked in a rehab. They transferred me to another rehab. That rehab had... A ninety a ninety day place they worked with down in Mississippi. And how old were you? Twenty four. Twenty four. Okay. Twenty four. Yeah. So I went down to Mississippi to a ninety day program. It took me nine and a half months to complete the ninety day program because I broke every fucking rule possible. I fucked every every girl I could find. I broke every rule. I had guns. We were hunting. I was just. I broke every rule. I did not listen. Married a girl. Uh, they transferred me to stage four, stage three, rather which was like a halfway house sort of place. Back then, they were called halfway houses. And uh, my first night there was Christmas Eve, 1987. And she walked through the door. And she was hot. And she was, I mean, she was super hot. And that was the night I met Robin. And against medical advice, I checked myself out of rehab about 30 days later. And then on February, 4th, on February 14th, we were married. And it was two and a half months later. And... I had about 90 days sober, and she still had a week sober, even though when I met her, she had a week sober. And then surprisingly, that didn't work out. So we moved to Connecticut because I had a job offer for my father so I could support my family because she had two kids. So now I had stepkids. I woke up, and I had a seven-year-old stepdaughter and a four-year-old stepson. It was super weird. Like, wake up at 24, and you're fucking all of a sudden a dad of two. Yeah. And 
I'm trying to make this as quick as possible. We ended up getting separated. I ended up in my, I found an apartment, a loft, very yuppified, uh, brick walls, very 80s. And I had a shower curtain, some towels, some sheets, a couple pillowcases, a basket load of laundry, and an alarm clock. And I was sitting on the floor of my apartment and saying, I'm tired of being the fuck up. I had a, a God shot. I had what I call a God shot. I don't know. I had an awakening. And I just had this like feeling in my chest. I said, I'm done. I'm done being the fuck up. I'm done losing. For once in my life, I'm actually going to try. So that night, I went to a meeting by myself, not because the rehab was telling me I was supposed to go. I went for myself and I went by myself. And that was the day that I believe I got sober, even though I'd had about nine months or so or eight months sober at that point. And I went late and I left early. And the next day I went a little less late and left a little less early. The next couple of days or so, I showed up on time and I started showing up early, helping out or just saying hello to people I barely knew, but like still standing off to the side, but like, you know, being like, you know, wave, waving at people with my cigarette. <clears throat> and about, about 60 days into this process, I like had made friends because after, you know, after like 13 or 14 fucking rehabs, I had the lingo down. Right, right, right. I knew right. the big book. I knew the big book backwards and forwards. It didn't matter. I could, I could talk AA all fucking day. So my shares were really fucking profound and I knew right things to say, make them laugh, make them cry, make them love you, you know? And so I was sharing at this meeting about what a tough dad had that I'd been at the mall and I'd really felt like drinking and I got through it. And I was like, yeah, me. Everybody's like, yeah, and I got the claps and the adoration that I fucking always looked for. And this big fucking guy who looks like Bluto from Popeye turns around, sitting in front of me, and he puts his arm behind his fucking chair, and he looks at me, and he goes, you're an alcoholic. We drink. That's what we do. It's no big deal. You shouldn't be surprised by that. And I was like, who's this motherfucker think he's talking to? Do you know I have, like, almost a year sober? Like, I had this shit figured out. I got fucking pissed. So we had a cigarette break back then. And I saw this guy, and he was on the other side of the horseshoe at this hospital entrance, and he started walking towards me. And so I did what I did because I knew from my training, I fucking popped off my rings, popped off my fucking bracelets, took off my watch, and I got ready to fucking go. Like I was going to fucking knock this guy out. He was twice my size, but I was going to fucking fight him. I was never afraid of a fight. And he walked up to me, and he opened his arms, and he pulled me into the biggest fucking hug I've ever felt in my life. And that man was Johnny K, and he changed, he saved my life. He loved me at a moment when I needed love so badly, I didn't even know that I needed it. I didn't need applause. I didn't need admiration or response from the crowd. I needed love. He became my sponsor. May he rest in peace. Um, and he showed me what it is to be a sober man in this world. And I lived that way. That was my that was the moment that changed. And that was in was that in Chicago? That was in Connecticut. That was in Connecticut. Okay. No. So Chicago, I went from Utah to Chicago, Chicago to Mississippi, Mississippi to Connecticut. Connecticut. Okay. And how did you make it to LA? All right. How did I end up in LA? So uh, I was living in Connecticut. Economy crashed. This was 90, I think, whatever it was, not even 90, 89, 88. The economy crashed and I jumped, got a one-way ticket to you to Hawaii and I lived in Maui for three and a half years. And worked program, went to meetings, did all the things. Life got better. Had a beautiful life there. Had a terrible breakup, and I was heartbroken. So I had one of my ex roommates who had moved to Boston. So I moved to Boston, and 
you know, as we say, our life gets bigger. And because when I was in meetings in Maui, and there's usually like the place where I lived in Lahaina, there's usually like 10, maybe 12 people in a meeting. And like one time years before, Steve Tyler and Joe Perry from Aerosmith had walked in and we became friends. Of course we did, because I've led a weird fucking life. And then we go to their house, we barbecue together, and I worked at a restaurant. They would come over to the restaurant, we'd hang out, and people would bug out that I was friends with them. So I moved to Boston, and I was after I was there about a month. I went to a concert, and somebody tapped me on the back. I was like, Noah? And I'm like, turned around, and it's Steve Tyler's then wife, Teresa. And she's like, what the fuck are you doing here? Like, she only knew me from Maui. Like, she's like, I'm like, I'm working in restaurants, working in clubs and bars and shit. She's like, that's so crazy. Steve and the band are about to open a fucking club, and they've been looking for somebody they could trust to like run the club. And I'm they're like, she's like, you'd be perfect. They trust you. Everybody in the band trusts you and loves you. I'm like, she's like, we made an appointment. Long story short, I ended up designing, building, running 2000 capacity live music club for Aerosmith in Boston. Met my girlfriend there, ended up having a bad breakup with the, after three years with the company that was managing the club, who were robbing me blind and stole about $400,000 from me, which back then was a lot of money. And so I wanted to go to LA to be a stand-up comedian because everybody had been telling me for years, you should be a stand-up comedian. You're really fucking funny. I was like, okay, babe, I'm gonna go, we're going to go to LA. And she's like, I don't want to go to LA. I'm like, we're, gonna, we're moving to LA. I'm going to save the day. I'm going to be a famous stand-up comedian. Everything's going to work out well. She ended up becoming one of the biggest vice president, the biggest, one of the biggest vice presidents of marketing for Universal Movies. I had no stand-up comedy career. Right? I kept running bars. That's how I ended up in LA. <laughs> and then you were sober there for many years. Many years. And then I like I had my I had a, a night, a day, night, I can't remember. I do a night evening in Vegas where I was sitting at this hotel t- in this table at my deluxe comp suite at the ponds because I was out there so much because my life was so big. I was gambling so much. Like I had like eighty thousand dollars in chips sitting on the table in front of me just play money. You know, I was like killing it. I was like a massive career as a first AD making music, making right, music right. videos. Right, right, right. So you're working with the biggest stars everywhere. You can even imagine when music videos were like the thing to do. I miss music um, videos. Uh, there's been an online petition to get MTV to just bring the music videos back during this quarantine. I'd be watching it nonstop. So I looked at my friend I'm at the Palms, and, and I looked at my friend, and I said, I'm either going to put a gun in my fucking mouth or a joint, and he handed me a joint, and I relapsed. And I woke up the next morning, I looked, I woke up like I had had a relapsed dream. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Yeah, 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 and it's real. And it was real. Oh, God. And there was, there was half a blunt sitting on my fucking nightstand. So I did what any reasonable alcoholic would do. I fired up that blunt, came home, came back to L.A., realized there was a niche market because in New York, we have these delivery services for weed. Yeah. And I think it was 2000, a little little late 2000, maybe early 2001. I opened the very first ever weed delivery service in LA and I had 3000 customers in 90 days and it exploded from there. And I made a ton of fucking money, spent it all, made a ton of money. And I ended up on the most random biggest God shot ever. I got arrested in all my years of dealing, and I've dealt a lot of drugs for a lot of fucking years. I've never kept quantity of weed or any drug or money at my house. But one of my guys was going out of town, and I had had a shipment come in, and it had to be delivered to my house. It was the only place that I had. So this massive shipment of weed and this massive pile of money come into my house, and the cops knock on my door. And they, they they said, listen, we know you have half pound, maybe a pound of weed. I had 50 pounds. 
They're like, we're, it's going to be a slap on the wrist. Just let us in. This will be over. You'll be out in like you know, an hour or two. I'm like, no. So somebody had gotten busted and didn't know that I was a big dealer, thought I was a small dealer, and just had I had a gym bag in my room because that's what the warrant said once they finally got it. And I got arrested and I got locked up and that saved my life because I was, I, they, I was facing 15 years in prison upstate in California. And I hired the literally the best weed dealer there was in the state of California. I shared a weed dealer with Snoop Dogg, who never <laughs> goes to prison. And I got, I was started going to an outpatient at Beit Shuva. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. So I did like, I'd been in Beit Shuva for 90 days when we went back to court. And the judge gave me another 90 days in rehab and then two years of probation, as opposed to 15 years in prison. And I've been sober ever since. So one thing about that's remarkable about your story, right? We started talking about the fact that you're a soul cycle instructor. And and when I knew you in, you know, when I was around in Los Angeles, we, we knew the same people, but we didn't actually hang out. We, you know, we have, we have some, we have same fr- like friends and stuff. We have, we have a very thick Venn diagram. <laughs> exactly. Our Venn diagram is real. Super thick. Super close there. And uh, so one of the things that's kind of, Later in sobriety, you found yourself in Los Angeles weighing 300 pounds and feeling super unhealthy. I mean, the like no one thought you would be a fitness instructor. Is that probably an easy thing oh, to say? A uh, week before my first soul cycle class, I went to my doctor to get a refill on some prescriptions, some random shit. And he was like, you're not going to, good luck, good news. You're not going to feel a thing. And I was like, what do you, what am I going to give me a shot? And he goes, no, you're about to have a heart attack. It's going to be so big. You're not going to feel a thing. You're not going to grab your arm. You're not going to like grab, grab your chest. You're not going to feel any pain. You're just, heart's just going to explode and you'll be dead before you hit the ground. So I took, I mean, I was wearing like, you, you saw me. I was fucking enormous. I was like dead, dead. And I was like, all right, well, he was like, I love you, but it's been good knowing you've been my doc for a long time, like 15 oh, years. He, like, he really laid it out. Oh, yeah, but he didn't like be like, you have to stop this. Yeah, yeah, no. He was just like, he was very real with me. He was like, listen, he goes, I love you, and I'm going to miss you, but you're going to die. So goodbye. I'm like, okay. I was like, okay. It didn't, didn't affect me at all. I'm like, okay, I'm going to die. You know, I'm you know not worried, wasn't concerned. And then I went to buy a pair of underwear at H&M on Sunset Boulevard. And it was the day I came up the escalator and it was the day that Soul Cycle opened in West Hollywood. And I walked in, I was like, hey, are the owners around? And I introduced myself. They're like, oh my God, you're Papa. You sent us Stacy, who's the original instructor. I'm like, yeah. They're like, oh, are you going to ride? I was like, sure. And they're like, okay, how about four o'clock today? I was like, great. So I drove home, put on my 4XL fucking shorts and Slipped into my fucking sneakers because I couldn't put on. I was so fat, I couldn't reach my feet to put on a pair of shoes. So all my shoes were slip-on. So I couldn't reach over my fucking girth to, like, put on a shoe. So I went and I picked a corner bike and a soul cycle class near a door. So that when I died, they wouldn't have to go in, like, the back row and carry me out. They could just carry me right out the door. And I was being, I was being considerate. I was being considerate. And I stayed on that bike for the next, I just lived on that fucking same bike for 90 fucking days. I wouldn't leave. And I rode twice the next day. And and about midway through class, I'm like, I grew up like in a fucking war zone. Like I've been in the seventies in the Bronx. Are you kidding me? I've been shot at too many times to count. I've watched too many people die. 
next to me, standing next to me or in front of me or around me. I've had contracts out of my life. I've had people try to throw me off fucking balconies and railings and literally try to kill me. I've lived through all that insanity. I've lived through all these accidents where I fucking should have been dead. And I'm going to die from fucking too much McDonald's. I was like, fuck it. I'm going to die trying. Literally live, you know, die trying. And I just started going really fucking fast. And I'm like, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die giving every fucking thing I got. So I went to two classes that day, and the next day, and three the day after that. And I lost 100 pounds in a little over 90 days. Like, just pure fucking will and determination. Just I was a four... I'm, when I get going in a certain direction, yeah, I I'm know. a real force of fucking yeah. nature. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think uh, we all in, have some of that quality. Like, once our yeah. mind's made up. Yeah, we go. We go. We go, go. So, wow. Okay, so you lost – this is in West Hollywood. You West lose, Hollywood. You lose 100 pounds in 90 days because all you're doing is soul cycle. And then what happens? Then they – Asked me to be an instructor. And they told me the deal is that I'm going to go to New York, train, and teach in New York for a year, and then come back to LA. So I put all my shit in storage, got on a plane, had a goodbye party, got on a plane, came home, landed at Kennedy, called my mom, and I said, Mom, I'm home. And she said, Oh, it's going to be so great to have you here for a year. And I was like, No, Mom, I'm home. I'm staying. And she started crying. She goes, oh, I've been praying for this for so many years. My mother that doesn't believe, my mother, the atheist, had been praying. Right. Um, right. And, but, you know, it's like, I just, and it was time to come home. I've been on the run for too long. And I just stayed. You became a soul cycle instructor. And uh, what has that been like going from? Yes. Going from where you were to that. I mean, and in a relatively quick period of time. Well, I've always been a helper, like a life helper. Like I've always wanted to help people. And I've always, I've been naturally, it's not even wanted to, it's just been this role that I think God cast me in that I'm like, I'm here to help other people. Like I'm at my best when I'm helping other people and I'm at my worst when I'm thinking about me. So like when I was in high school, they called me uncle Noah everywhere. I went, I went to college in Texas. There was no internet. There was nobody to know. I got to school in Texas, like 2000 miles away. They started calling me uncle Noah. Like I've always been that sort of figure. And so then I was 30 years old. I was living in Boston. Somebody referred to me as Papa. Then everybody started calling me Papa. So I went from uncle to Papa. And now to this day, there are still people who call me Papa. I'm that, I'm that figure that I'm, I'm meant to help. I'm meant to be here doing this. And so it was funny because I'm the first and still to this day, only soul cycle instructor that comes from a mental health background. I worked at a bunch of rehabs out there. I worked at the 180 Center. I worked at Beit Shuva. I went from like client to case, to case manager in like 90 days at Beit Shuva because I had all the sobriety. I knew what to do and I chased it to get back in. So I bring the soul cycle completely different. I, I don't come from an athletic background. Although I play a lot of sports, but I was the only one hired because of my mental health work and my ability to bring that to a classroom and exercise at the same time became came very naturally to me, the transition. It was a bigger platform. It was an opportunity to help more people at one time. You know. And so now that, how old are you now? 56. I can't, I like, 56. I legitimately, 56. I legitimately can't believe that, but okay. So I know it's true, but Cause, I, because I look a hundred, right? 
Because yeah, because you, uh, yeah, no. So you are fifty six. You fifty six, and you are a Soul Cycle of you know successful Soul Fitness Soul Cycle instructor. How yeah. rad in New York City after having used Soul Cycle to lose a hundred pounds, and that was how long ago? That wasn't even that long ago, like five years. That was eight, eight, eight years ago. Eight years ago. Okay. Eight years ago. Yeah. So yeah. So I mean, yeah. I mean, it's it's a trip. You know, it's just, it's a very, it's my, you know, like I said at the beginning, like my life is like Mr. Toad's wild ride. You know, it's just, you can't, you can't make this shit up. Like, how do you go from like working with the biggest names in fucking music to like then working for one of the biggest rock bands of all time to now I'm a fucking soul cycle instructor in New York City and people all over the world know who I am. It's like, it's super fucking weird and it's super amazing. It's a great opportunity. I use it to help. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I use it to always be of help and be of service. You know, I have this thing called selfless. It's my, my, my podcast is based on this idea called selfless help. I believe in like the nineties and the early two thousands that self-help became a really big thing. And I watched it become a big thing. And what I realized is what everybody did is with self-help was great, but all they started doing was thinking about themselves. So it became so self-centered and they gave birth to a bunch of self-centered kids. I'm not like lumping everybody together. I'm just saying in a global way, especially in the, the as I can see it in the United States, the function of society was become really self-centered. So I believe in selfless help. I believe now learning to do acts of service in furtherance of the betterment of my life. My life is better. I would say the the less I think, the more I think about myself, the less I think of myself. I like that. I think that's, I think that's true. And I, I think that, you know, we, you know, it's, it's a crazy, you know, one of the things that I think is, is, you know, I want to touch on, which is that when you don't feel, when you're not bettering yourself, moving forward, doing, you know, doing something to enhance your recovery, you use other things, whatever that is. And it'll be, it's amazing what it is, right? Because you talked about going to Vegas all the time and, you know, using that and money and all these different things. And then it was food, right? And then it was food. And what I always say is I use against my will. I use drugs and alcohol against my will, but I'll also use other things against my will. And as long as my addiction mind, my ego, right? My ego, as long as my ego is around, I am going to use something. And so I have to find the things that are going to fill that self-esteem piece because the moment I stop doing that, I just use against my will. It's food, it's sex, it's, it's, you know, TV, it's, it's work, it's whatever, doesn't matter. And so I think that's such a big part of you know, this, I love that, like the selfless help. It's about continuing the recovery piece in a way that kind of holds that other, that ego at bay. When there's a natural disaster, like a flood, and you see people building the walls of sandbags to prevent the fucking water, we're sort of in the business of always putting more sandbags up against Absolutely. the intrusion of our fucking addiction into yeah, our lives. That's a and the day we take the day we take over is the day a little water may slip over. Yes. And you may slip and fall in the water. You may not drown, but you may slip and fall in it. Like you have to constantly be 
creating that wall to be higher and stronger and more dur- more durable and able to stain more. And then so when we go through things, which we will, we will go through challenging times. I never say the word hard. I always tell my I work as a life coach. I tell people like we take the word hard out. We use the word challenging because that's all it is. It's just challenging. And then we're secure. And the way we build that is by building community and going to meetings and doing all the things we're supposed to fucking do. You know, that's that's what our storm wall is like, is that group of people in the fucking meetings praying at the end, that community, that fellowship, all that stuff holds us for that moment when you're sitting there and you're feeling sad and depressed and you feel like getting high. If your fucking wall's built well enough, you won't. It's, that is a wonderful, I love, 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 love that. Um, Cause I can see that and you will over the course of your sobriety and life, anyone's life, but you will over the course of your sobriety, those sandbags will be taken down by some event. So you, you better have them stacked because here's the deal. If it's not stacked, you're in the water, the water's coming in, whatever it is. And, yeah. and the water is ego. Yeah. Yeah. The water's ego right. and disbelief. Right. And and you lose that job or things fall apart and you don't have that wall built. And I think that's just, it's the biggest piece of, you know, just doing it one day at a time, stacking those defenses. And I think, you know, it's easier to see that after you've been sober a long time and you've seen a lot of people come and go and, and you and I have both had relapses. So we know what that looks and feels like, which is awful. <laughs> it's terrible. How long have you been, how long have you been sober? Uh, 14 years. 14 years. Yeah. I got sober at 19. So you got, so you got sober right, right, right. As I was going back, mm-hmm. right, right yep. before I came back, yeah. so you saw me as a newcomer. Yeah. I, it didn't occur. I didn't, uh, um, absorb that you were a newcomer, but I saw you, I saw you around then. Yeah. I was, I got sober in 2006 and then I came to the, I came to Southern California in two, uh, that same year at the end of the year and started coming up to LA. Cool. Yeah. Well, we're close. you are incredible and what you've done is incredible. And as are you. Thank you. You're dope. Thank You're you. You're dope as fuck. Dope AF. I think that people should go and check out your podcast called I'm here to help. Right. Did I get that right. Yep. Um, yeah, you did. And your soul cycle class, if you're in New York City, oh, well, maybe not not during COVID, but if you're in New York City, yeah, no, we're sure. yeah, yeah, we're in, if I'm if I'm if I'm still working at Soul Cycle, I find out on Monday because everything shut down, so uh, well, because we're completely closed. Oh, so, my God, have they said anything about like no? We're we're pay, we are being paid through Monday, but after my we're gonna I think we're gonna we're gonna talk on Monday. I have a group or a big company wide meeting, and they're gonna tell us what their plan is going forward. I have no idea what that looks like. And my girlfriend's like, are you stressed? And I'm like, she likes to stress. Don't let her listen to this podcast. I won't let her go on the podcast. And I'm like, no, I'm not. She's like, why not? I'm like, well, I'm going to be okay no matter what. You know? How do you have that mindset? Because God, look at me. Well, if I was, if I've destroyed my life a hundred times over. I'm fucking sitting in my apartment in Brooklyn. It's a beautiful fucking day. I have money in the bank. I have food in the fucking fridge. And I can be fucking overwhelmed with gratitude. I was sitting on a fucking bench, handcuffed to a bench and locked in a fucking jail cell, you know, nine years ago, 14 years ago, rather. Like, how the fuck? I remember what, standing on the steps of Beit Shuva, 
my second day there. The first day there, I thought I was escaping America and my lawyer was getting me on the run. But the second day, I realized after I realized it was a rehab and it was right when the economy collapsed. And I remember standing there going, I'm 40 whatever years old. I'm covered in fucking tattoos. I'm a convicted felon. And my two, my two, I thought I have two best case scenarios. I either do manual labor, which I was fucking, you know, just not built for because I'd done a lot of manual labor in my life. And I know how backbreaking that was. Or I would work on a loading dock. That was the best I could hope for. And now I'm a soul cycle instructor <laughs> in New York City in this bougie, in this bougie ass part of Brooklyn. Like I have a fucking hot, beautiful, amazing, smart girlfriend who's the joy of my life, who I love beyond anything. Like I have an incredible life. I live next door to my best friend. Although he's leaving me in July, you're getting Mescal back. What? Oh, he's coming back? He's coming back, yeah. So Oh wow. But he lives on the other side of my wall and we're gonna go through. Oh my god. We've gosh. been taking our daily we take daily walks now in the COVID. Oh my you know, gosh. Our, I wanna live next walks. door to my best friend. <laughs> I know it's pretty dope. That's so dope. So that's how that's how I have confidence. I know it's going to be all right. I know we're all going to get to the other side of this. There will be another side. There's always another side. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking and uh, sharing your your hope and and wisdom. And I look forward to seeing what is next in this chapter of your life. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm honored and privileged to be asked to be share even a little bit about myself. And um, you guys are fucking rad and keep doing the good work and keep getting the message out. Thank you. Thank you. Will do. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information. 